Welcome to Leading with Empathy and Allyship, where we have deep, real conversations to build empathy for one another and to take action to be more inclusive and to lead the change in our workplaces and communities. I'm Melinda Brianna Epler, founder and CEO of Change Catalyst and author of How to Be an Ally. I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion speaker, advocate, and advisor. You can learn more about my work and sign up to join us for a live recording at ally.cc. All right, let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Today, we have two special guests who are normally working behind the scenes to make our live events and podcasts run smoothly. Our co-producers, Renzo Santos and Christina Swindlehurst-Chan. And we'll be talking today about intersectional identities, the ways that they shape our experiences, both inside and outside of work, and how we can create more inclusive workplaces for people with intersectional identities. So welcome, Christina and Renzo. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Uh, it's a great honor to be here. <laughs> yeah. How, do, how does it feel to be on the other side of the camera, <laughs> as they say? Very different. Yeah, very different. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's start by talking a little bit about your stories, um, where you grew up, how you came to do the work you do today. And maybe I'll start with you, Renzo. Yeah, thank you for that question. And it's always a question that is hard to answer, but I'm just going to try to make it as quickly as I can. So I'm Renzo. I was uh, born and raised in the Philippines in the capital region called uh, in a city called Quezon City. However, I wouldn't say that my upbringing is similar to a lot of people who lived in cities. My early values were honed by the humble beginnings of my parents from the northern provinces of the Philippines. So I really saw the value of hard work at the beginning. And growing up, it was quite difficult for me because I wasn't out as a gay man to my parents. And at a very young age, I've also realized that I'm good with numbers. I love numbers. I love finance. So it's really something that I want to hone my expertise on. And I haven't seen a lot of gay Filipino men thriving in the finance industry locally or internationally. So I really try to compensate for me embracing my identity just by being your typical type A personality, going all out from school to my early careers. And then I really hit a rock bottom because I was really working up until, there were weeks that I was working up until 4 a.m. at the start of my career because I was having struggles embracing my identity as a gay man and trying to thrive in the industry that I want to thrive in. And my mental health was at, is at its lowest. So I needed a clean slate. Uh, luckily, I was able to uh, get a scholarship to study here in the United States um, in San Francisco at Halt International Business School with a master's in um, international business. And luckily, in that journey, I met you. <laughs> And I got introduced to Change Catalyst, and I really found a good intersection of doing what I'm good at, which is finance. I'm currently the finance and operations analyst of Change Catalyst as well, um, and doing something about diversity, equity, and inclusion, which has been a big passion of mine. But I haven't really just quite understood it up until I started working for you, Melinda. So I think that's a good summary of my story so far. <laughs> awesome. And we met because of 
our internship program, actually, not that you were an intern, but that we had an intern who then recommended you yes. <laughs> um, for our open role. So, uh, uh, Hien, which, uh, yeah, we still keep in touch with too. So very, very cool. I'm glad that, and I think that, you know, it's key that as we're working on diversity and inclusion, that those internship programs are essential for really widening our, our, our where you're, we're finding candidates. Yeah. hundred cool. percent. I owe it a lot to Hien. <laughs> so hi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and glad that we that glad that we connected, and I've really appreciated you. So, yeah. Christina, how about you? Tell us a bit about your story. Okay, well, I grew up in San Diego. My dad is Chinese. He immigrated here from Hong Kong when he was nine, and my mom is white of Hungarian and English descent. And I I grew up in a pretty affluent. Community um, it was mostly white and Asian as well, and it was pretty progressive, but but not racially diverse, and it was, it was kind of in this bubble. Um, and so, my parents had told me stories about the challenges they had faced in a mixed race marriage. But you know, I think you've talked about this, Melinda. Like I, I also kind of believed that we were. I was in this post-racial society, and that you know, I was taught. Um, not to see color, and uh, like, like a lot of my peers were, and and it wasn't really till college until I am a trained opera singer. I I studied music in in college, and then uh, and then did voice and opera in in my masters, and and so I was taking all these these history classes in college, um, and had a really understanding for the first time how like deeply ingrained a lot of us. Uh, sexist and racist things are in our in all parts of our history and including music history and, and these operas and pieces that we're still performing today have a lot of really racist themes and sexist themes and characters and and these were like composers who were like shaping the musical world at the time and also the societal world and and so I, I just became a lot more aware of racial inequities and injustices. And, you know, I also went to UC Berkeley, which is very progressive. And so, and there, I was exposed to a lot of like protests and rallies and, and just got me asking a lot of questions. And so I just started consuming a lot more stories through new music and theater and art and books. And I did a lot of self-work and started taking a look at the spaces I was in and what they looked at like and my own privilege, but also like where I was the minority as being an Asian woman in the entertainment industry. And then out of grad school, I ended up getting a job uh, doing marketing for mortgage insurance company. And we had this newsletter that I was like the copy editor, copywriter for, and and it really focused on talking about the disparity, the cultural disparities in housing. And so then I became really um, attuned to like, uh, the issues in our housing systems and and just this whole other branch where, where there were um, inequities happening. Yeah, and then and then like everyone else, uh, George Floyd's murder really kind of shook me. Um, and that that point, the, the door had kind of been open to this work, but it really encouraged me to to go deeper. And at that point, I'd also been in a serious relationship, still am, with um, a black woman, and so it it felt like it was hitting closer to home. Uh, for me, and and it became a, a reality that like my my children will probably be black, and so I really uh, since since then I've just been on a constant learning journey, and 
Ruchika mentioned a couple episodes ago, I think, about like reading fiction and the impact that had for her. And and I, I wholeheartedly agree. I, I love reading and learning about other people's stories. And, and so, yeah, that's kind of when I saw this opportunity to work here doing the work that you're doing, it, I just really was aligned with what was becoming very important to me for, you know, for my parents and for myself and my partner and, you know, just kind of everyone around me. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I was thinking the other day that you were a part of the great resignation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, um, so thank you both for sharing your stories. I, I, I appreciate that. And I am learning too. We've talked about, um, I think in preparing for this episode and in this episode, I think I will learn more about you too. So I'm excited about that. So both of you have intersectional identities. So I want to just stop for a second and can you just share how you describe your own identity? Because I think that that is really interesting and sometimes surprising when, when people describe their own identities. So. I identify as a biracial Asian and white queer woman. Yeah, um, I identify as a Filipino gay cisgender man. I'm also an immigrant and I also have a Invisible disability. Mm. Do you mind my asking, like, which of those is most important to you? And like you said, for I guess, the, is it the thing that you say first? So biracial for you, Filipino. Um, I would say, I think this is a an interesting, a challenging question. I think that up until now and growing up, biracial slash Asian mixed Asian was. Mm-hmm has been like the most important part of my identity because it's the thing that people first see when they look at me and the thing that people comment on and, and, and ask questions about and that I've always kind of been forced to process like more complex feelings around. And I also grew up in an environment where my environment was progressive and queer allied. And I also like went to an arts high school where very stereotypically queer. And and so that part of my identity was something I didn't like seriously have to face. And then I, and I am also very, you know, cisgendered and I don't appear gay, which is kind of silly to Mm. have to say, because what does being queer look like? (laughs) (laughs) But because of that, I, I didn't really have to deal with that head on. But now I'm at a point in my life where I'm in a serious relationship where we're talking about marriage and kids. And I think doing all these things that are typically reserved for more straight presenting couples. And so I, you know, that's when queerness becomes like more threatening to people and, and when unsupportive voices tend to get louder. And so I kind of fully anticipate that going forward, my queerness will become the most important part of my identity, which is, you know, a little scary, but it's, it's also very like exciting that I'm at that point in my life. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Renzo. Yeah. I definitely resonate a lot with that. I started uh, describing my identity as a Filipino. I think that's the first word that I said, uh, primarily because I'm an immigrant and Asia is a big continent. So it wasn't really natural for me to say up until now that I'm Asian, primarily because Asia is big. There's Southeast Asian, South Asian, East Asian. So even in the Philippines itself, there's a lot of nuances in the culture that we have as Filipinos. So in general, I'm just very 
accustomed to or it's natural for me to just uh, identify as Filipino. But going back to the question, what is the more uh, most important thing? I think up to this date, a lot of the challenges that I've faced or internalized heterosexism that I have faced um, really gave me the passion and the fuel in me to conquer more obstacles in the other aspects of my identity. So I think uh, what really made me more resilient and what made me more uh, stronger right now is me overcoming some of my obstacles as a gay man in a place where it wasn't that accepted quite fully yet. Hmm. Yeah. Um, let's talk first about your experience as an immigrant. We haven't talked about that a lot on this show. And I think that's important. How does that experience of as an immigrant in the U.S. Uh, shape your experience overall and, and your experiences at work? I think the most obvious answers would be the cultural differences, the uh, language barriers, like some my accent is so different, so sometimes there are biases and microaggressions just be, uh, because I sound different or I look different. Um, there's also sometimes difficulty understanding situation, difficulty understanding context, difficulty understanding the humor. So I really appreciate when somebody in the team asks me if I understand something that is very typically American in a phrase that an international person might not be able to understand that quickly. And I think because of all of those combined, my confidence sometimes isn't at the highest as well because I feel like I'm very different. I sound different. And sometimes I don't understand things that are typically understood by general people who live here for a long time. So, and that could somehow also affect small things at work like sometimes I would have to google things in order for me to better understand if that word is the right word that I want to use in an email for instance so like small things like what you do Melinda telling me um, the tips especially at the beginning of my career really helped me a lot in understanding the cultural differences and language barriers that I might have faced at the beginning I think yeah we'll circle back on ways that allies can show up for you in a bit. I want to talk a little bit too about, uh, if it's okay with you, about about our work together to sponsor, Change Catalyst sponsored um, Renzo's H-1B visa. And I have learned a ton about doing that. We're a small business, so it was me and Renzo navigating that together. It's an anxiety producing and confusing journey. We actually didn't win the first time. We had to go do it again. So we did twice, basically, right? Um, Which was difficult on both of us. Um, So, you know, that I think that anxiety producing kind of aspect of being an immigrant is a piece of all of this that we don't really talk about very much, that kind of uncertainty and also the constraints that you experienced in particular within the pandemic and not being able to travel and stuff, I think is also a piece of that too. Do you mind talking about that a little bit? A hundred percent. And just to give a little bit context, I moved here primarily because I feel like I would be able to embrace my queer identity more if I go in a space where I feel safe to explore it. So when I was doing my post-grad degree here, I've learned about H-1B. And for those who haven't um, heard of it, it's a work visa that are given to people who apply for it. And the number one 
hindrance or difficulty is getting a company to sponsor an H1B for you. Because as Melinda mentioned, it goes through a very long, tedious paperwork where resources and energy are taken from not just the sponsor, but also the one who's being sponsored. Not counting the legal fees associated to be able to make this happen. So getting that yes from somebody is one form of just allyship already. And that is a lot of uh, difficulties for international students or even just anybody who might want to willing to migrate here to the United States. Second, um, after filing all those paperwork, the United States have this law that only 85,000 H-1B can be given out in a, in a year. So, for example, I think last year there were 300,000 estimated number of applicants, unique uh, applicants. Out of those 300,000, they will be filtered for those who have filed correctly. And out of those who have filed correctly, only 85,000 would be winning the H-1B lottery, which is basically a random way for USCIS, the cover uh, for the United States, to choose these um, the H-1B workers. So. It doesn't necessarily mean even if you're the most competent or if you uh, uh, check all the boxes in um, being an excellent worker, it doesn't necessarily mean that you would get an H-1B. So not indicating all the anxiety that is involved in the entire application process. So yeah, um, there's a lot of things to think about this entire process and why it is still like this to this date, but at the same time, the level of support and allyship that one can create in this immigration journey is a lot, not just as colleagues, but also as friends. Mm, nice. And then can you also talk a little bit about the constraints within the pandemic that is like added? We all have different difficulties and we all had stress during the pandemic. Um, and on top of that, you also as, a, as an immigrant. Did. Yeah, and this one would really hit close to my heart. It's been a lot. Um, so we knew that during the lockdown, a lot of embassies closed. So for us who are with an H-1B uh, visa, we're not even allowed to move out of the country because we're not going to be able to get the stamp anywhere to get back inside the country. And during the lockdown, I lost my grandmother um, and I wasn't able to get out of the United States, even if I wanted to just... It's been a lot, uh, but yeah, uh, and just the idea of not being there with my father to help him go through the pain and not being with my family, not being given that chance or that opportunity because I, and the sacrifices I have to make to be able to stay here is a lot. And I'm grateful for my team, uh, Christina, Melinda, Wayne. Araya and everybody who was there in that journey because my mental health also was at its lowest during those times. And I was able to get enough support from my colleagues to be able to continue work at those hard situations, at those hard um, parts of my life. Thank you for sharing that. It is a lot. And yeah, thank you. Thank you as well. Christina, Maybe we'll go to you next here and um, talk a little bit about, so as a daughter of an immigrant, so in on one side of, I guess, um, your second generation, um, on the other side, uh, longer, how has that shaped your own experience? Um, I think it's 
you know, my, my dad was very young when he came here. He was nine. Um, and so he assimilated very easily culturally. And so my household was pretty, you know, and then he, he married a white woman. And so my, my household was pretty kind of American, I guess. But but I did struggle with my mixed race identity. And I felt a lot of pressure from just society to like, to lean into my whiteness uh, because that's the part of me that felt desired by society. And, you know, there, there were a lot of microaggressions that were directed my way that I, at the time, they, those comments that people think are, are compliments, but I always like felt really kind of gross afterward. And like some of the things people would say were like, you know, oh, I want my babies to be mixed because mixed babies are always the prettiest. And oh, you look so exotic. And, uh, you know, like even the, I got some comments from Asian people saying like, oh, you're so lucky to be half white. And and it just, it made me feel like my value was in the part of me that was half white or ambiguous somehow. And how that was connected to my like physical desirability within society. And so I think because of that, I, I never really embraced my Asian-ness. And it's unfortunate because, you know, like my dad and his family, like I heard stories and, and I know that they sacrificed a lot, but I think I just, you know, I, I was also told by society that like Chinese people were less attractive and they didn't care as much about the environment, which is something I really cared about. And they were the people that were, people with like the accents were picked on stereotypically in school. And so I, I struggled with that. And I kind of was in this place too, where I, I felt like, I wasn't white enough, uh, but I also wasn't Asian enough because I didn't have as many of the like Chinese traditions in my household. My, my cousins did. Um, and we kind of, I experienced them sort of like tangentially, but not, I wasn't as immersed in them. And so it wasn't really until the anti-Asian hate kind of started like bubbling up, like what was it a year or two ago that I, I really, that's when I really started having a hard time. And I felt really sad because I was like connected and disconnected at the same time. Like I, I am Asian and I'm, most of my family is Asian. And so it felt really, it felt close to home in that way. But it was also, I felt very disconnected because I had pushed away that part of me for so long that I didn't really know how to claim it anymore. And so since then, I've really been trying to, I mean, even, even kind of before then, I think it helped being, you know, my partner is also from you know, she's Afro-Latina, and so she's also kind of from these multiple backgrounds. And so that's something we really bonded over. And so she's something she's always been encouraging me to explore more throughout our relationship. But it wasn't really like since then that I felt very sort of moved to like embrace that part of myself and really be proud of it because it is something to be proud of. And, you know, my my grandparents sacrificed a lot to be here and my dad worked really hard to be successful in the way that he is. And I, and I, I want to honor that moving mm -hmm. forward. Thank you for sharing that. And we, Renzo talked a little bit about his own intersectionality between his being an immigrant and being a gay man. How does your biracial identity intersect with your queer identity or does it? I think, yeah, I think it does. I think it intersects kind of in the way that like I, my mix, race identity always made me feel like I had this desire to fit in and I didn't always know where I fit in. And so 
And so I, but I think because I was trying to fit in in that way, I, I kind of put my queer identity on the back burner. And, and I really, I worked hard to feel accepted. And I, you know, I mentioned earlier, I, I came from an environment where queerness was already accepted. And, you know, I was taught from a young age that sexuality is on a spectrum and that, and that we're all probably on that spectrum. And then by the, I, so I didn't really openly like come to terms with it until I was in early college. And at that point, I, I was in a straight presenting relationship with a white man. And, um, and I think that that relation to whiteness also like made me feel like I fit in more. And so, uh, you know, for more reasons than that, I, I did, I think, stay longer than I should have in that relationship. And then by the time that relationship ended, I was, you know, I was in, I was out of college, I was in grad school and and I, I hadn't really embraced my queerness very like loudly or made an effort to engage in the queer spaces and, you know, besides being in theater and music, but, um, and I'm very, I've always been very introverted. So it felt hard to enter those spaces by myself. And I was also like privileged in that I didn't, I didn't feel like I needed to, in order to gain acceptance with, and so, but because of that, I, I didn't, I didn't really have a strong queer community. So that's something I'm, I'm working to change for myself now, but kind of back to the intersection, it, it feels like there are a lot of spaces where like white queer people dominate. And although they can be amazing resources and amazing allies and, and all that, it, it, it can also be harder for them to understand specific challenges that my partner and I will face as a mixed race queer couple. And like, you know, every queer couple who wants to have kids will need help. And, and just small things like, you know, a few of our friends are in the process of, of having kids and, and talking about sperm donors and all that. And we kind of started looking into it just to see what was available to us and and the options for donors to represent my partner and I are significantly, significantly less than for our friends who, for the most part, have been looking for white donors. And especially with my, you know, partner not just being Black, but being Afro-Latina and then me being not just Asian, but like mixed Asian. And and, and so it's just like in little ways where, where we will experience that much more of a challenge. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Renzo, did you have anything, do you have anything more to add about those intersections that you've experienced? It's just fascinating to realize that my, because I've always believed that we are large, we are multitude, we contain multitude. So my identity as an immigrant is able to help Renzo as a gay man to be able to explore more his identity and to um, understand and realize a lot of things that he might otherwise not be able to understand if he Renzo did not become an immigrant, but at the same time, Renzo as a gay man is helping Renzo as an immigrant be able to have more confidence and trust in himself to um, overcome future obstacles that might come his way. And if he like a lot of these facets or dimensions of our identities actually do complement each other in not just helping ourselves, but also empathizing with others as well in understanding perspectives and experiences that we might not necessarily have the opportunity to experience ourselves. So yeah, a lot of these intersections for me feels like a big pathway for me to overcome more obstacles in the future and to just embrace my identity more. Hmm. 
how do these experiences impact how you show up at work? Either one of you join in. Um, I think that, you know, I mentioned my like introversion and desire to fit in, which I think are very strongly correlated and, and I'll, this desire to like feel safe and feel accepted. And so kind of just being in situations where you have to like really think about, can I share about my partner or like, how do I bring up that I have a partner who's a woman or, you know, how are current events affecting me? Is that something I can, I can bring to this space and feel safe? And, you know, also like extroversion is, is something that's really prized in our work environment as who are the leaders and they're always the, the extroverts. But I felt like that wasn't really the case in school uh, growing up. And, you know, Brene Brown talks about like creativity scars. And I feel like growing up to the few times that I, I was outgoing and I, and I did kind of like show myself a little bit more loudly, I, I was pretty swiftly shut down and made to feel less. And so, and because I want to fit in, because I have all these experiences that I just, I'm less vocal now. So then when I am in this work environment where like, not, not this one, but, <laughs> but in previous ones <laughs> where like I'm surrounded by, you know, I, I had an experience where like I was on a team of extroverts and I was kind of asked to conform to like their way of communicating and processing. And that's not how I feel safe. And they, you know, they are very like, they would talk on top of each other. And like, it, I, I didn't ever feel like I hadn't, and they would process quickly. And, and that's not me. I, I need time, but my, the biggest feedback that I got from, you know, my managers at the time were like, you need to speak up more and you need to uh, contribute more in meetings because that's how you're going to get noticed. And that's how you're going to get promoted. And, and so kind of knowing that I, this is already something I'm uncomfortable doing. And now you're making me feel uncomfortable at something I'm uncomfortable doing. <laughs> it's like, it just added this, to this pressure and, and not really feeling, there wasn't kind of a sense that they were trying to accommodate me or meet me where I was at in any way. So yeah, be open yeah. to your own particular way of a method of leadership and, and yeah. uh, how you can show up because I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Benjamin. Yeah. Um, and I very, very resonate with that a lot. As an Asian immigrant man, I've been always trying to challenge our idea of what an amazing employee is or what an amazing student is. I came from a very collectivist mindset. So growing up, my entire upbringing has always been all about rhythm, all about community, making sure not to challenge the status quo, but to just blend in, not get the spotlight. And I feel like growing up or even just moving here in the in the United States, I have to combat again and unforget a lot of those things on my subconscious to be able to prove that I am worthy enough of the position that I am in at or to be worthy of being listened to as uh, opposed or like vis-a-vis the individualist mindset that a typical American might have. So I feel like uh, what really is an efficient, amazing employee? Is it just when somebody is always trying to challenge the status quo? Is it always just trying to get the spotlight? Or are there other means of being a good employee that is more inclusive in nature and not just specifically catering to one specific personality type? 
Mm. Yeah, it's a really good point that there's so many work cultures that that do prioritize. I mean, we work a lot in the tech industry and then entertainment industry is similar too, is that both Christina and I kind of came from and is very both are very kind of, they reward the type A, they reward people who um, can talk well about themselves and can talk and speak in the moment, even if they don't have the knowledge behind it, right? And whereas um, being introverts, I'm an introvert and, uh, and uh, it has been, it's difficult to navigate that space and still show your worth. Um, so we need to create those workplaces where you have that um, opening for people to thrive and show their worth in different ways. Uh, so as a small team, I think of one other intersection is that you mentioned, Renzo, is mental health. And as a small team, we've all had moments uh, where our mental health was not 100% uh, during the pandemic. And I, you know, one of the things I really appreciate about our team is that we do check in. We do have those moments to check in. We are transparent and open with each other about it. And it really, we hold space for each other uh, to be open and honest about it. Do you have any um, thoughts about how that intersection works within the workplace? Yeah, um, I, I can start. Um, and this will be like just a big thank you to you, Melinda, um, and also to the team, <laughs> to it. Um, you really taught me that sometimes it's okay not to be okay, just to be transparent and be able to give me that flexibility to still be able to live amidst all the things that are happening outside my workspace and go to work and feel safe that even if I'm not operating at my 100% it's okay everything will still be okay at the end I uh, just try to be transparent about it and the support that you and the team were able to provide me to be able to survive whatever has happened for the last few uh, years is something that I'll be like forever grateful for. So yeah, I think the idea of it's okay not to be okay is something that we can even think more about and do more as uh, human beings. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, I came from an environment where, you know, I, well, I, I spent, like most people, I spent a lot of the pandemic, like really uh, processing a lot of like who I am and like what I care about yeah. <laughs> um, as most of us have and as you've heard so far but um and you know I think I had this idea in my head that you can't kind of show you know mental health is always important to me but I think in workplaces it's always felt like oh you have to be like strong and you have to like show up and be valuable to your company and I, I came kind of from an environment where that was not uh, mental health was it was kind of talked about, but it wasn't it wasn't prioritized. And I think and I kind of found out after leaving that it like me not because because I, I did have a hard time and me not operating at a hundred percent was kind of used against me um, mm. after I left. And so it's you know I think that's something I'm. I'm still kind of getting used to here is that like mm -hmm. you, I know that you say take time when you need it and that you're like, everyone here is very encouraging of taking care of our mental health. But I think that like, I'm still getting used to that for myself because I have come from environments where it's like, they kind of say that, but they don't mean it. And, mm -hmm. and like, yeah. So I think it's, it, that's something I'm, I'm still working on. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I am too. And I think we're all a work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, given all these intersections and in, um, in your different aspects of your identity and experiences, how do you most want allies to show up for you in, in your workplace? You can talk more broadly than just our current workplace, but yeah. Um, I think that I've kind of expressed that as an introvert and just as someone who's always wanted to fit in, um, I do still like to feel like I have a voice and and like I I want to feel like respected with my voice because I think a lot of the reason I am quiet, um, especially at first, is because I've been like shut down before. And so I think when when an ally can really listen to me and take in what I'm saying, that's like so valuable. And I don't speak loudly or as often as others, but when I do, I I tend to be very thoughtful about it. And so when people brush away my ideas without really thinking about them, it feels very hurtful. And it's just another way that I'm not like fitting in. Right. And so you don't have to agree with me or use my ideas, but I think just like showing that you're taking the time to like take my thoughts into consideration and that my thoughts are valuable to you. And, you know, if, if necessary, providing constructive feedback so I can grow. And and if you do take my idea, like giving me credit, like I think just listening really is that just makes all the difference for me. Mm. I uh, definitely um, would like to echo that um, for me, when my brain tells me to blend in, maybe I would need an ally to tell me, no, don't go get the spotlight. <laughs> it's okay sometimes to get that spotlight and shine. But also like, I would just also appreciate um, when people will t- uh, sometimes go the extra mile and explain me things that I might not understand culturally. Or if I, for example, use a word or a phrase that is not should be accepted or like that has some historical burden on it and I am not aware of that just because I came from a different culture I I really want to be corrected and I want to say the right things and maybe lastly I want people to listen to me even if I look different even if I sound different the same way that they would listen to a a person that they look like. Mm, Awesome. I think it's important that it's with this important thing you said, there's a lot you said that was important. And one thing that stuck out for me is that I don't think we talk about very much is that it's the the idioms and the kind of um, um, phrases that we use. It's not just in, about English and it's also about culture. It's those two things together that um, sometimes, and that's I think the, the anthropologist in me, I am kind of more maybe heightened and aware of that, which is why you mentioned earlier that I, that I do try to point those things out. Like, Renta, have you heard of this before? If not, well, we can explain it, right? Um, yeah. It's just a, a way to really open the conversation and allow you to fully participate. Yeah, so that when I, I laugh, I'm genuinely laughing because I understood the humor and not just because I felt like the need to laugh because everybody was laughing. Right. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. So as you both know, um, the last question that I have been asking guests lately is we want to make sure that our listeners and watchers are taking action 
as a result of these conversations. So what action would you like people to take coming out of this conversation? Okay, I can start. Um, for me, uh, just a simple how are you goes a long way. So don't be afraid to say how are you to as many friends, as many colleagues as you can. Um, and just check in because a simple check in really uh, gives a safe space for everybody to share when they're ready to share. I would say mine is to learn about people and it just people in general, like just learn about humans, including yourself. Like I think one of the ways that I've most built empathy is through a couple of things. Um, one is studying the, the Enneagram and I highly recommend the wisdom of the Enneagram for anyone who's interested and also reading books like Childhood Distracted uh, by Donna Jackson Nakazawa. At the root of, they, they approach them kind of differently, but at the root, they're, they're both trying to reveal like why we are, how we are, and um, how our, our trauma and our early experiences really shape us. And, and they shape our nervous systems and our responses to things. And I think that it's, it's not to use as like an excuse for poor behavior by any means. I think like it's more like when we understand ourselves and each other and why we respond the way we do, I think we can work to better ourselves and really create like powerful connections um, and empathy with the people around us. Mm. I love it. I love that. And for our uh, watchers and listeners, we did mention a few different resources that we'll add in our show notes that'll be on our website, ally.cc. Thank you. Thank you both. Benzo and Christina, thanks for, thanks for having this conversation and uh, appreciate all you bring, of course, to, to our team. And uh, thank you for sharing your stories and your experiences. To learn more about this episode's topic, visit ally.cc. Allyship is a journey. It's a journey of self-exploration, learning, unlearning, healing, and taking consistent action. And the more we take action, the more we grow as leaders and transform our communities. So what action will you take today? Please share your actions and learning with us by emailing podcast at changecatalyst.co or on social media, because we'd love to hear from you. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast and the YouTube channel and share this. Let's keep building allies around the world. Leading with Empathy and Allyship is an original show by Change Catalyst, where we build inclusive innovation through training, consulting, and events. Appreciate you listening to our show and taking action as an ally. See you next week.